all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Welcome, one and all, to episode 361 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Baha'i Calendar episode of the SLS Cast because it turns out that there's this wonderful faith called the Baha'i Faith, and they have a calendar, a very special calendar called the Baha'i Calendar, also known as the Badi calendar where Badi means wondrous or unique and it is a solar calendar with years composed of 19 months of 19 days each and when you have that you have exactly 361 days and with that wonderful little bit of Baha'i faith knowledge I of course am Matt and coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee Tim what's up yo oh not much just Taking in the Christmas spirit here in Los Angeles, California, where I'm uh, mm. I'm going to the L.A. Zoo Lights on Wednesday. We're throwing a Christmas party on Saturday. Then we're going to the L.A. or maybe it's the Pasadena Botanical Gardens on Sunday to see even more Christmas lights. Goodness. And then when I'm in Houston for Christmas, I'm going to be seeing more lights, paying to go see more lights. So it's going to be a little bit of a... You know, an outdoor illumination extravaganza this year. Very spiffy. Yes, we have done some. We've we've done, as I've said before, the Santa's Wonderland thing already this year, and we've even done a little bit of uh, kind of impromptu roundabout the neighborhood to go look at some lights. And I think we will probably do. Um. Oh, I can never remember the name of the Prestonwood. Uh, we'll probably do the famous Prestonwood light show on Christmas Eve thereabouts. So that's going to be our outdoor lighting extravaganza. So for those of you who don't know, Prestonwood is one of those fancy upper collar uh, neighborhoods where you're basically forced to decorate the outside of your house. You know, I guess there's maybe five or six streets that are forced to do this. Oh, no, it's more like 30 or 40 streets. That are forced oh, really? To do I just thought it was yeah. maybe like five or six really long streets. No, they have. It's it's a huge, huge thing, and it's actually in sections now. But I think they've changed the deed restrictions and stuff um, because traffic, I guess, was just getting too far out of hand. Uh, the last few years, there have been many homes uh, probably getting up to about 30% of the homes that actually don't do lights at all. So I'm not sure. Um, maybe they're trying to discourage people from coming and then they might do it back up a little bit better. But yeah, it's not as cool as it's been in the last couple of years. I would be so annoyed if I got roped into one of those neighborhoods having to put my lights up every year. I'd be worried about people coming onto my lawn, trying to steal the lights. Because it would happen to me. Like Somebody would walk up and remove a single light bulb and screw everything up. Well, and then I'd come out with a shovel is, and hit somebody in the head. I think you're just really taking your poor experiences of random bad things happening to you, uh, like having a homeless guy pour his urine at you or throw his urine at you these are the things that i think just stick with you i don't really think that that would happen anymore you know you you, you kind of worked it all out of the system ahead of time well maybe that would be the cure you know that will be what what will restore my 
my view of humanity is that if I lived in, if I made enough money to live in Prestonwood, see, that's the big thing. I mean, that would impress me more because I think maybe if I had enough money to live in that neighborhood, for one thing, I wouldn't be putting up those lights by myself. I would probably hire somebody, right? I mean, because you just can't put up. You can. But but you have to do it good, though. It's going to be obvious if you're not, if you're only eh at putting up lights compared to Joe Shamrock across the street who has... The North Pole set up, uh, you know, the nativity scene blends seamlessly into the other thematic <laughs> or whatever. I would also see that that's what kind of my issue with living in a place like Prestonwood would be. Not that um, not that I would mind so much the fact that, you know, my house would be done up. But that what if I wanted like a pizza or something? I mean, how how the hell like when, you know, the week of Christmas, how the hell am I going to get a pizza? You know, oh, you live in Prestonwood? Yeah, it's three-hour delivery time. What? You know, and then, of course, I'm like, never mind. I'll just do it for carryout. And it takes me an hour to get out of the neighborhood, you know? Um, So that would be my thing. It's kind of like I feel like I would be trapped in my neighborhood or I would have to be, like, trapped out of my neighborhood, excluded from my neighborhood for hours at a time um, every day. And so that would kind of bother me. Because you just can't leave to go see a movie. Like, you'd have to leave to go see four movies. <laughs> right. Like, yes. maybe 11 o'clock might be the cutoff, but you're still going to have those teen stragglers running yes. amok. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we got stuff to we got stuff to talk about. Let's, uh, what do you say we go ahead and jump right into the news? Sounds good. And we promise you, folks, next episode, or even the episode after that, we'll, we'll make an attempt to be more positively festive. Or at least I will try to be, somehow. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. Maybe we can talk about the movie Klaus or Claus that I watched oh, the other day. It's I, fantastic. So good. Yeah, it's so good. You yes, you texted me uh, in the middle of the night because I was already asleep, and so I woke up and on Sunday morning and I saw that, and I'm like, why? Well, I, I got an hour to kill. Why not? Or two hours to kill. Whatever. So I got up, and then my middle daughter comes in about halfway through and she's like oh you're watching this i'm only a little bit further ahead and i'm like well come on in and so she gets up into the bed and uh and we finished watching klausy oh my god it was so good so good did you cry i did but only at the song part like when they do the little song about you know feelings being invisible or whatever yes i i choked up a little i will not i will not uh lie Shed a bit of a tear. My wife became a blubbering, pregnant wine bag. As it, right <laughs> once she heard the utterance of the final line of the movie, and it got me too. I mean, it takes a lot to really get me going, and that movie oh, no, that has all get, the feels. That didn't do it. Yeah, not okay. So you remember the part where um, basically the they. I'm sorry, guys. Spoilers or whatever. So you remember when Klaus and Mailman Guy make the board for the for the foreign girl? Oh, yes. Yeah. That was the part that got me when, you know, she comes out and sees the board and then sails around and the music swells and, uh, you know, about the feelings being invisible. Don't worry. Minor spoiler happens in the middle of the movie, you know, not really giving anything away. Um, yeah, that, that was the part where I shed a tear. It was just so, you know, moving that the little girl who'd been waiting finally got something. Yeah. The wife leaned over about halfway through and she was like, this animation is very interesting. And I was like, yeah, it kind of reminds me of a, of a book, like a classic children's book. She goes, yeah, but I've never really seen it before. What do you call it? 
hand-drawn animation (laughs) like it's but it's very interesting like i I get why she said it because it's different and she knows what hand-drawn animation looks like but that also goes to show that hand-drawn animated movies have become extinct you know especially good ones have become extinct so hopefully if anything this movie helps revitalize that art form in some way and and that was one of the things that um i was and i'm sure everybody at disney was especially john laster and something i was disappointed about at that came out of princess and the frog was the idea was to show that traditional animation did not have to go the way of the dodo there was still there was still room for it now i mean it didn't necessarily um mean that it would head-on compete all the time with CGI, but that you could still do quality, you know, um, animation. And and now we see it again with Klaus. Um, but at least with Netflix, God, you know, bless their little hearts, um, <laughs> with their with their wonderful movie accounting. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry, minor spoiler alert for the news. Um, their, with their movie accounting, as it were, Hey, at least now we do have an avenue to enjoy this stuff again. Because once Princess and the Frog didn't do the business that they had expected it to do, that was it. They shuttered it. So there would be no more traditional animation. So uh, I'm definitely glad to see that kind of stuff here. Yeah. But yes, we can definitely talk about that next week or something if you want. I mean, you know, in more detail. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so I guess we should. And here we are chuckling and shucking and jiving and now i have news that's sad um so i'm going to (laughs) what a segue guys what what a segue yes i have two very sad pieces of news oh wait wait wait. you didn't do the intro to the news so maybe that'll be this that'll be like the break you know the breaking point the good transition i suppose okay so then yes officially it's the news Now that we're officially in the news, um, uh, let me start off with two very sad pieces of news in the order in which I found them out. Not that one is necessarily better or greater than the other, because based on uh, your life, your memories, your childhood, your pop culture, one might be more than the other. They might be equal or what have you. So in the order that I found them out... Uh, from NPR.org by way of uh, Laurel Wamsley and the obituary staff, Carol Spiney, who played Big Bird, or I'm sorry, Spinney, who played Big Bird and Oscar on Sesame Street, dies at 85. Carol Spinney, the actor and puppeteer who portrayed Big Bird and Oscar the Grouch on Sesame Street over five decades, uh, died on Sunday at age 85. Sesame Workshop said Spinney had died at his home in Connecticut and that he had had uh, long lived with dystonia, a, distor- a disorder that causes involuntary muscle contractions. <clears throat> Quote, Carol and Big Bird are very similar in their genuine niceness and sweetness and lovingness. He's just so respectful and so nice to all the kids and all that comes across in Big Bird. End quote. 
there, and that was from Joan Gans Cooney, co-founder of the Sesame Workshop, and she said that in a video tribute to Spinney last year uh, when he retired. Um, at the show's at a celebration for the show's 15th anniversary in 1984, Muppet Master Jim Henson recounted how he and Spinney met, had met in August 1969 at a puppetry festival in Salt Lake City. Henson remembers, quote, He's a very talented performer, and he had a great sense of ad-libbing. And he was doing this strange-looking cat on local television in Boston. And so we started talking at that point about doing this show, and I asked Carol if he'd enjoy coming and being part of this very strange bird, end quote. But Spinney also played the character with the opposite of Big Bird's sunny persona, Oscar the Grouch. <clears throat> Quote, I loved playing Oscar. He has a power I never had. I can't believe that Jim gave me, touch, gave me two such characters that have become iconic and are a part of so many people in America growing up, end quote. Um, and... You know, the article is, uh, this particular article is pretty brief. And I want to stop there because, yes, again, he did retire last year. Um, is this is just such a sad thing for me? I, I remember, uh, yesterday I actually quoted, um, I quoted, uh, something that Big Bird had done. Uh, when they had, when Mr. Hooper passed away. And so Big Bird kind of has to find out about what it was, you know, about death and what the permanence of it and everything. And something that, that Big Bird says is, you know, well, it's okay because we can remember and remember and remember and remember as much as we want to. And I think that that's really says a lot, uh, about Big Bird and the personality, and I think the man behind him. Um, there was also, a few years back, uh, on Reddit, uh, Carol Spinney did an AMA, and asked me anything. And one of the top responses here was, he was asked this question, what has been your most meaningful interaction with a child during filming? Or maybe from someone who grew up watching you and relate a poignant story? Carol Spinney replies, okay, here's one. This is a very sad story, but it's real. I got a letter from a fan who said his little boy, who was five years old, his name was Joey, he was dying of cancer. And he was so ill, the little boy knew he was dying. So the man in his letter asked if I would call the little boy. He said the only thing that cheered him at all in his fading state was to see Big Bird on television. So once in a while, he wouldn't see Big Bird on some days because he wasn't necessarily in every show. So he asked could I telephone him and talk to the boy, tell him what a good boy he's been. So I took a while to look up a phone because this was before cell phones and they got a long cord to bring a phone to the boy. And I had Big Bird say, hello, hello, Joey, it's me, Big Bird. So he said, is it really you, Big Bird? Yes, it is. I chatted a while with him, about 10 minutes, and he said, I'm glad you're my friend, Big Bird. And I said, I'd better let you go now. He said, thank you for calling me, Big Bird. You're my friend. You make me happy. And it turns out that his father and mother were sitting with him when the phone call came. And he was very, very ill that day. And they had called the parents in because they weren't sure how long he'd last. And so his father wrote to me right away and said, thank you, thank you. He hadn't seen him smile since October. And this was in March. And when the phone was hung up, he said, Big Bird called me. He's my friend. And he closed his eyes and he passed away. And I could see that what I say to children can be very important. 
And he said, we haven't seen our little boy, our little boy smile in months. He smiled as he passed away. It was a gift to us. Thank you. And I think that's probably the most fitting tribute to Carol Spinney and Big Bird and Oscar the Grouch and everything. I think that completely sums up what he meant to a lot of people, including me from my childhood as well. Well, great. Now I'm feeling how I felt at the end of Claws. <laughs> Thank you. <I'm> sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's, no that's very sweet. I've never, I haven't heard of that story. Uh, I've always liked him as a, as a person and I never did see the documentary about her, about him. I am Big Bird, or oh yeah, that came out in like 2012 or something like 2012, 2015. Yeah, it was like supposed that. to be great. I never did see it. Um, if it makes you feel any better, you can always just play the raw audio back for your, your spouse and have her turn into the uh, quote blubbering wine bag. I think. You yes, and I realized when I said that. <laughs> End quote. Uh, yeah, pregnant <laughs> blubbering pregnant wine bag. I didn't want people to think she was drinking wine, uh, but as in wine bag, as in a crying person wine correct yes w-h-i-n-e yes yes um i i I knew what you meant okay good okay good uh moving forward (laughs) moving forward uh arstechnica.com by way of samuel axon star trek and fallout actor Rene abergenois has passed away esteemed uh actor character actor Rene abergenois died in his home in los angeles on sunday at the age of 79 the new york times reports the cause of death was lung cancer. Abergenois was a prolific actor whose 55-year career spanned well over 200 roles. To many, he was the shape-shifting security officer Odo from Star Trek Deep Space Nine. To others, he was Father John Mulcahy from, uh, I'm sorry, Mulcahy from MASH or Clayton Endicott III from Benson, where I first remember seeing him. Uh, again, as a little kid. Others may still others still may know him as Paul Lewiston from Boston Legal or as Dr. Burton from Batman Forever. Many more would recognize him from his numerous guest roles on TV series like Stargate SG-1, Madam Secretary, The Good Wife, Archer, Grey's Anatomy, Criminal Minds, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, and many more. He also played numerous roles in video games. He voiced Mr. House, a central character in 2010's Fallout New Vegas. He also appeared as Carl Schaefer in Uncharted 2, Talos in God of War, and Genos Adon in the Legacy of Kane series. Additionally, he was an acclaimed audiobook reader and a regular performer on the theater stage. Uh, born in Manhattan in 1940, Aubergine attended now called Carnegie Mellon University before beginning his career in theater, film, television, and voiceover. His father was a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, his grandfather was a notable painter, and his mother was descended from the family of Napoleon Bonaparte. Clearly, he had better had been famous or he would have been disowned. While he was not a professional artist like his grandfather, Abergenois treated the visual arts as a hobby. He was known for selling drawings and other artworks to fans at Star Trek conventions and donating the proceeds to charity. In the 2000s, uh, Abergenois reportedly expected to retire from acting, but the success of Boston Legal gave his career even longer legs than he'd anticipated. He worked all the way until his death. He is survived by his wife of 56 years, a son and two daughters, and three grandchildren. And that is the entirety of that article. It is pretty brief. Uh, it was chosen for that. I'm sure if you want, you can uh, have the longer New York Times article to go to as well. Um, but those are the two passings I wanted to mention, Carol Spinney and 
uh, Rene Abergenois. First up from me via TheGuardian.com. Uh, I hope you don't cry over this because I definitely did not. Turkey, anyone? Why standards slip at Christmas when it comes to film written by Steve Rose? And it says this. Every year, my in-laws have a Christmas tradition. They all sit down and watch Love Actually together. I will usually be in the kitchen doing something less painful, like removing my own fingernails. It's just a thing they do that feels a lot like Christmas. They are by no means the only ones. Christmas is the only time of the year that we will actively rewatch movies, even terrible ones. This is great news for the film industry. The same old festive films are dusted off and put out every year. It's a Wonderful Life, Meet Me in St. Louis, uh, St. Louis, apologies, White Christmas, any number of Christmas carols, Elf, you know the drill. It takes a lot to get into this hallowed canon, but if you do, you can coin it in year after year. It's the movie equivalent of having written Slade's Merry Xmas, Everybody, or All I Want for Christmas is You. The current pre-Christmas window presents an opportunity to get a new bobble into the decoration box. It is also a time of year when quality thresholds are at their lowest. Audiences are mold, wind up, and sentimental, and will happily consume stuff they would never go near at other times. Earlier this month, for example, despite the critics' best efforts, the top film at the UK box office was Last Christmas, a rom-com in the classical Richard Curtis tradition. The ingredients are all there. Fable-like romance, absurdly over-festive setting, broad comedy, cheesy sentiment, and a pitch for a repeat watch status baked into the title. It was inspired by George Michael's hit in a thuddingly literal way. It is turning into an arms race of niceness. Just look at Netflix's festive carpet bombing this year. For the youngsters, there is this animated movie, Claws. For tweens, fairy tale rom-com The Night Before Christmas. For teens, the small town ensemble Let It Snow. For all the family, the Dennis Quaid sitcom Merry Happy Whatever. For the, quote, I've drunk so much mold wine, I'll watch anything with Christmas in the title, end quote, market, a Christmas Prince 3, the royal baby. Meanwhile, alongside Frozen 2, Disney has its own streaming Christmas cash-in, Noel starring Anna Kendrick as Santa's dutiful daughter. If all these sound dispiritingly unoriginal, that's kind of the point. Comfort viewing is a secular tradition. For some, it takes the place of church. Sitting through familiar stories, even not very good ones, if only to come together, rejoice in leisure, and remember previous times we watched them. It's the true meaning of Christmas. End all quotes. There again, that was via theguardian.com. Turkey, anyone, why standards slip at Christmas when it comes to film written by Stephen Rose, or just Steve Rose. Matt, what do you think? I know you're a big Christmas movie guy. Do you kind of agree? I mean, there are, I mean, I love White Christmas. I think White Christmas is a great movie. Uh, love Actually, that is definitely cheeseball sentiment. I mean, are there definitely cheesy Christmas movies that you look forward to watching every year? So I agree with the outcome, but not the process. 
I do, uh, I do believe that people like to watch the cheesy movies. Um, because I have actually kind of gotten into over the last couple of years, uh, uh, the cheesy movies. I, I find them to just kind of be not, uh, popcorn fair or whatever, but it's sometimes it's just easy to kind of turn your brain off and still be able to to enjoy something. And I don't mean it to disparage it as just pure mindless entertainment, but because it's already just a simple story, you can just enjoy it. It's kind of like a, it's kind of like a little fairy tale for the, like a little golden book for your adult movie watching brain. Um, but I think the, I, I, I don't think it is because people want to watch the standard slip for the sake of letting the standard slip. I think it's because they trigger those simple movies that we grew up on, the classic simple movies that if they were made today wouldn't last today. They wouldn't hold a candle to what's going on. We can we can look back on a movie like It's a Wonderful Life or Miracle on 34th Street and appreciate its simplicity because it was well crafted then. And and it ages well because it was well crafted then. Um and we appreciate it because it's something we grew up with. You can't have that in a big budget movie now because for the most part they don't um that they, they won't hold up under scrutiny. So it's easier to simply just recreate that simple older style of film using current actors and settings and then do it on the cheap um and then just kind of roll the dice as to not whether or not people will like it because if you make enough of them one or two of them is all you need to be a super big hit to pay for all the rest uh and then you stumble across something like a christmas prince which then turns into a trilogy although i don't know why they decided to make the third one uh the first one was cute um, and was pretty pretty clever and and nice. Oh, you watched it? I did. Oh. Uh, I did. And then I was like, well, since the first one was cute and fun and nice, by yourself, I'll watch the second one. Um, I don't remember. One of them I did watch by myself because it just seemed like, again, the mindless entertainment thing. I think it was the second one that I watched by myself because I had watched the first one with the kids. Um. Or maybe I watched the first one by myself because I was, I thought, one other way, one way, one I watched with the fam, one I watched on my own. I can't remember which way it worked out. But I will say that the second one is, is bad. Like it's, it's not, it's, it's not entertaining. Like the first one's cute and fun and nice. The second one is like, really? Um, clearly we went for the cash grab here. Um, and, and it wasn't as good, like, at all. And I think people watched the second one on the strength of the first one, but I don't think there were any repeat viewings, so why they came and made a third one, I couldn't tell you. A Christmas Prince on Rotten Tomatoes scored 73%, so fresh. A Christmas Prince, The Royal Wedding, came out last year, 47%. A Christmas Prince, right. The Royal Baby... I was going to say the royal betting, the royal baby that came out this year, uh, 29%. So according to critics, <laughs> it is worse than part two. Okay, see? And that's what I meant. So, so okay, so see, I wasn't totally off my rocker with the first one. 
it got good reviews. And so then the second one, you're like, you got to be kidding me. And so, okay, yeah, so this third one. Now, so now I kind of want to watch the third one just because I want to see the train wreck. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. That, that one's just going to have to wait. Anyways, what else do you have, sir? So I have a couple uh, pieces of box office news. First up, via IndieWire.com, Martin Scorsese's biggest opening weekend ever was on Netflix. But there's a catch written by Zach Scharf, and it says this. The first viewership numbers for Martin Scorsese's The Irishman have arrived, courtesy of Nielsen. The gangster epic debuted on Netflix's streaming platform on November 27th and watched by 17.1 million unique Netflix viewers in the U.S. over its first week of availability. That number might not be at the level of the Sandra Bullock sensation Bird Box, which scored 26 million viewers, but it's an impressive start for an adult-driven three-and-a-half-hour crime epic. According to Nielsen's report via Variety, the Irishman registered an average minute audience of 13.2 million in the U.S. over its first week, less than Bird Box's 16.9 million, but higher than Netflix's El Camino, a Breaking Bad movie, which scored 8.2 million. On its November 27th premiere date, The Irishman brought in an average minute audience of nearly 2.6 million viewers and 3.9 million unique viewers in the U.S. per Nielsen. Across its first five days of availability, the film garnered an average minute audience of nearly 13.2 million viewers with a reach of over 17.1 million unique U.S. viewers. The Nielsen... The Nielsen numbers point to The Irishman having a strong debut and 17.1 million unique viewers in a week easily makes for the biggest debut of Scorsese's career. The average movie ticket price in 2019 is $9.08, which means it had a 17, uh, excuse me, uh, which means had 17.1 million viewers bought a ticket to see The Irishman, the gross would already stand at approximately $155 million in a single week. That number outgrosses Scorsese's biggest box office hit, The Departed, which ended its domestic run with $132 million. And the article goes on from there. Matt, I know before we started recording, we chatted about this i find this uh, a little bit ridiculous kind of dumb because how do we know who all made it past 30 minutes past two minutes even how many people started it you saw the netflix logo and decided it was too late in the evening to start it they after they saw how long the movie was and they just turned it off that's what i don't understand but, well, I mean, I would say I, I don't know how much they're going to fudge the data based on what Nielsen told them, uh, because they they can now it, um, Nielsen can now track how long things are being viewed and stuff like that. So I'm assuming if the people turn tuned in, uh, they probably they're reporting numbers of people who watched the entire movie probably over the weekend. I don't think that's correct. I don't think Nielsen does have that information. I think that. They have access to the information if, and again, I, I think they have access to the information. It's kind of like an all or nothing kind of 
deal. Actually, the rest of the article here, uh, one more little bit of this is that as the catch with Nielsen's ratings is that they account for viewers who did not finish The Irishman to completion. Okay, so then... And only 751,000 U.S. viewers watched all three and a half hours. Okay, so they so they do know who didn't finish. I guess so. Okay, so, so that's the thing. So my understanding of how Nielsen works, um, because they had the control when they... Uh, they had this control when it, you know, was originally just like regular broadcast TV and cable TV because it was, um, the signal was run through the Nielsen box and then, you know, into the t- television or whatever. Um, is that they could tell what you were watching, they could tell what channel you were watching, when you started, and when you stopped. Um, and so. My understanding when it comes to like a streaming service is that if the streaming service allows Nielsen to track the data, then they, then they can track it all. They can track what they start, what program they started watching and how long they watched it. Um, and so I would even say that giving them the benefit of the doubt, which clearly the article goes on to say that they don't, but let's just assume that all 17 million people watched it for the entire time. You know, I'm with you on this. I think it's just fudging the numbers. I think this is, this is just Netflix's way to say, see, we weren't wrong for spending $150 million on this. Um, did, how many of those 17 million people would have actually gone and seen the movie if it had been in a movie theater? Exactly. And, you know, <laughs> let, let me finish reading this real quick, because, I mean, you're absolutely right. So going back to the article, in fact, Nielsen reports that only 751,000 U.S. viewers watched all three and a half hours of The Irishman on its November 27th premiere date. That number went up to 930,000 U.S. viewers on November 29th, the Friday after Thanksgiving. That's not even breaking a million with the, the first two days. So doubtfully, well, is that going to jump up another 16 million within you know the, the end of that long weekend? Oh, I agree. So now, see, we just went from 132 million or 150 million, whatever the hell it is. Now we're down to 10 million. You know, right? Exactly. So, so I don't know if they're trying to say that these are the legs that it would have had over time. So yeah, it opened at ten million, and then would have gained legs and possibly gotten all these people to see it, and they would have gotten you know a couple hundred million out of the thing by the end of the run. I, I don't know. It's I agree with you on this one. It's BS. Totally. Whatever. And then I'm just going to jump into my last piece here since it's box office news as well. Via Variety, box office bomb Playmobil flops in historic fashion, written by Rebecca Rubin. Uh, and it says this Playmobil the movie, or Playmobil the movie, will make box office history, but certainly not in the way it intended. STX's animated adventure generated less than $1 million despite launching in 2,337 North American theaters and now stands as one of the worst opening weekends of all time. 
Play Mobile scraped together just $668,000 over the weekend, marking the third lowest debut ever for a film that was playing in over 2,000 locations. The only movies to suffer worse fates were 2012's The Oogie Loves in the Big Balloon Adventure, which grossed only $443,901, and 2008's Delgo, which clocked in at $511,920. North American theater chains and regional venues offer the film for five bucks, significantly less than the average ticket price in U.S. of roughly $9. Children's tickets can run up to 15 bucks in major markets like New York and L.A., but even heavily discounted prices weren't enough of an incentive since it's already a competitive time of year for moviegoing, the studio will struggle to hold screens in coming weeks as temples like Jumanji, The Next Level, and Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker will gear up for their big screen debuts. Uh, and the article goes on from there. I'm surprised that this movie didn't make hundreds of millions of dollars during its opening weekend. Matthew, I know you're just as surprised because you you love Playmobil. I know you played with Playmobil up until you were 15 years old. It made hundreds of millions of pennies. <laughs> does does that count for anything? <laughs> Yeah, this one I don't get. I, I legitimately don't get. Like, I could see something like this having a straight-to-DVD release or straight-to-Blu-ray, straight-to-streaming. Um, that would probably make sense for a younger set of kids who enjoyed it or remember enjoying it. Um, perhaps maybe for the older set of kids. Or not the older set of kids, but maybe like my parents who might have played with Playmobil when they were I don't know guess what the budget was for the film um I'm gonna go with I'm gonna I'm gonna say they they at least had an inkling of what they were up against let's say 20 million 175 million no no way come on are you serious let me double check this article because that's what it said no. at the top before the link. No it said... No way. What studio was behind this? STX. Okay. Maybe maybe this was formed just so that they'd have some kind of um, tax haven so they could write the losses off. <laughs> hey, I mean, me, it's I'm... a good way. It's a good way to hide that kind of cash. You get a few, you know, you get a few really rich people together. Uh, the For, I'm sorry. I, I, it was so... incorrect. Incorrect. Okay. Uh, I have no idea what the hell I was looking. I mean, it says 170. No, okay, but no, it's 40 million. But still, 40 million. Okay, 40 That's million dollars. I mean, if we use the you know base rule of thumb, a movie has to double its budget before it breaks even. That would still need 80 million dollars to break even. You know, I just okay. Hang on. Let me I, I, now. I want to play mobile the movie. Let's see here. Wow. Anya Taylor-Joy, Jim Gaffigan, Adam Lambert, really? Keenan Thompson, Megan Trainor, Daniel Radcliffe? 
Yeah, and that was less than a million dollars in the U.S. Internationally, the movie has made twelve and a half million dollars. Oh, so maybe Plain Mobile is bigger around the world. I mean, obviously not a whole lot. I mean, it, um, it's twelve million dollar dollars bigger. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. Holy I had I have no idea what the hell Play Mobile is or Play Mobile. But it's been out for months. It came out in, in Annecy at the Annecy Animation Film Festival. Um, I mean, it was released in, in internationally. First. Yeah, and then in, in France it was released in August, and then it's just now being released re- released here. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure what the heck. It's got to be something bigger in Europe or something. But again, like it's it's little series of non-action action figures uh if you will they're just kind of little round figure people or something and you would just use them in like a play fantasy setting like a little city or a little town um i remember that my my at my mimi and granddaddy's house they had a little stash of toys for when you know the grandkids would come over when they were little you know when they're like four to say seven sure um and they had that stuff there that you know and and they also had it mixed in with like the fisher price and the old lincoln logs and the old tinker toys and stuff because clearly you know growing up in the 80s they had stuff from the freaking 60s <laughs> so um yeah i don't know it was it's you got me i don't even i don't even understand this so um yeah okay well then i guess very very quickly you know i just don't care we're we're far enough along (laughs) i had another thing so let me just uh hollywoodreporter.com by way of ashley collins filmmakers use feds over quote unconstitutional unquote fees to shoot in national parks basically this guy gordon price who did a feature uh called crawford road um got in trouble for filming uh in a where was he um Yorktown Battlefield in Colonial National Historical Park in Virginia, um, which is a feature about an area in York County that is home to unsolved murders and is rumored to be haunted. So the government um, basically was upset with him for filming certain parts of his uh, movie without getting a permit. Um, meanwhile, if you're filming the news there, like a news segment, you don't have to file a permit. If you're taking a picture there, um, like a, just a photo, then you don't have to file a permit. And this guy's like, that's not fair that these people get to film or take pictures. And if I film for commercial purposes, I have to file a permit. Well, buddy, that's pretty much anywhere. If you're going to film something for commercial purposes, you have to pay, you have to have a permit for it. Um, and this guy is trying to sue, saying it's unconstitutional. He's going to lose. Yeah. It's, the money's going to go back to the park, more than likely. Well, and that's what I'm saying. It's like, dude, this is, you, you, that's the stupidest, it's just stupid. And that was all I wanted to say anyways. So if you want to check it out, HollywoodReporter.com, uh, again, by way of Ashley Collins, filmmaker sues feds over, quote, unconstitutional fees to shoot in national parks. So, uh, yeah, that's what's up. And uh, that's my news. And that's the news. All right. Well, then next week, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to be doing uh, a bit of a different thing. It's it's getting towards the end of the year. So next week we'll have our um, basically our end of the year roundup. We're going to be kind of um, getting ready to 
um, recap the decade, if you will, uh, and see what's happening there and talk about that kind of stuff and move through literally 2010 to 2015, then, you know, eventually 2015 to 2020, and then a look into 2020, if you will. So, um, yeah, it's going to be fun to do all that kind of stuff. And that's what our bonus segment for uh, the next couple of weeks is going to be, um, or actually for really the next few weeks. So, Yeehaw and have fun. And in the meantime, how about we do some movies? Let's do it. Here we go, folks. It's the movie. So we've got two films here. We've got Marriage Story uh, and The Farewell, both 2019 versions of this film or editions or styles because there are earlier versions of both The Farewell and the, and Marriage Story. Um, not that they're necessarily related, but just other movies with the same title. Uh, where would you like to start, sir? How about The Farewell? All right. The Farewell, which... We don't really have a way to do an accurate trailer for you unless you already know Chinese. Uh, because the, there's quite a large chunk of this movie that's in Chinese and therefore subtitled. So let me just fill you in. Uh, it's an American comedy drama film. It's written and directed by Lulu Wang. Stars <laughs> Aquafina, not the water, but the rapper slash artist. Uh, Tsi Ma, Diana Lin, Zhao Shuhen, Lu Hong, and Zhang Yongbo. Did you say Aquafina uh, and then Zima? Right? Uh, <laughs> right? I totally missed that one. No. Uh, Zima is the name. But yeah, that's hilarious. <laughs> Aquafina and Zima. Uh, together again. Hey, look, episode title. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Um, at any rate, though, this is a, a film about a family who is losing the matriarch, the grand matriarch, to cancer, but they decide to keep this diagnosis from her, and the Western, um, the Western-influenced daughter, if you will, or granddaughter, in this case, um, Billy, who is struggling to deal with with the with the diagnosis and the family's plan to keep it from her uh, or to keep it from this grandmother the matriarch um yeah so this movie is definitely heartfelt it's very interesting and what i like about the movie is that it it really does feel like a genuine family you don't see people playing the plot uh against itself just solely for the sake of, of a plot device or for plot armor. These are people who are a mixture of dedicated, resigned, uh, upset, acceptance. You're, you're kind of seeing like all the stages of grief and death that you can have when someone dies, but experiencing it in a family dynamic while that person is still alive. Um, it is an added bonus to the film that I think it's actually, I mean, it's just portrayed 
is i guess the easiest way to say it is um sincerely it's it's sincerely portrayed um nothing actually feels out of place um i do think that they try to go for some overwrought um storytelling but only because i think that this they feel that the family dynamic is strong enough and built well enough within the script that they could get away with it. Um, to a certain degree, I think that they were right, but it wasn't executed flawlessly. This is an exceptionally solid movie for me. I definitely think that if you're not afraid of subtitles by any stretch of the imagination, and I know some people are, um, I don't really consider this to be a fully um a fully chinese movie a fully foreign film um but you might think that based on the amount of subtitles you have to read um i still say give it a go of course i'm biased i like foreign films anyway um i give this one uh mm, four four and a half i'll say four I'm going to say four. Um, it's very solid, very well told, and has a unique cultural spin on it. But um, it is not necessarily the end-all be-all of breakthrough cinema that I feel some people will have purported it to be. Uh, great film nonetheless. Definitely check it out. Four stars. What do you got there, Tim? I thought it was a very lovely film that takes an interesting and heartfelt stab at a at a, at a, at a fish-out-of-water story. We've seen many fish-out-of-water stories lately, but this one still seems to feel fresh and interesting, and I haven't seen a fish-out-of-water story quite like this, at least from Aquafina's character's point of view. The film is based on a true story, Lulu Wang, the director's story, and the message of the film was very interesting. I liked the different perspectives, because you have Aquafina's character who's going back to China. She's Americanized. And in America, we feel like we owe it to the people, especially those who are sick, to tell them that they are sick. Because if they have any unfinished business that they want to finish, then maybe they have the right to go about finishing said business. However, over in China, they believe that what kills a person isn't necessarily disease, but more so the fear. I don't want to spoil anything with the movie, but the ending of the film left me feeling uplifted. And I enjoyed the movie that much more because I really wasn't... I thought it was going to be one of those movies where it leaves you with this ambiguous ending, but it doesn't. It's a well-told story. Uh, my biggest complaint... I felt it could have been situationally funnier, and I'm not talking about camp, but the characters are very rich. Some of these people have quirks that I just would have liked to have seen explored more. The humor is very subdued, and again, I just would like to have seen some of those quirks more you know, explored. But that's just me. I mean, I saw a lot of comedy in the film, it just could have been a little bit more prominent, and it would not have taken away the heart from the story at all. I'm going to give this movie a 4.5 out of 5, because I just don't have anything really bad to say about it. And 
I think that is okay. So 4.5 out of 5 for me. So today, uh, mm-hmm. Monday, December 9th, the Golden Globe nominations, you know, happened, I guess, were Yeah, announced. I saw that. Uh, that, I, that was almost one of my news pieces, but I was like, eh, we'll get to it eventually. <laughs> um, personally, I think Lulu Wang deserved a nod for her direction for this film. Uh, I definitely think she deserves it over Todd Phillips, but that's just me. And I have not seen Little Women yet, which I was kind of surprised that Greta Gerwig didn't receive a nomination. But I definitely think that at least Lulu Wang deserved a place in the nominations because she did a, a very nice job with The Farewell. All right, then. That leaves us last but not least with 2019's Marriage Story. What I love about Nicole... She is a mother who plays, really plays. What I love about Charlie, he loves being a dad. He loves all the things you're supposed to hate, like waking up at night. She knows when to push me and when to leave me alone. He never lets other people keep him from what he wants to do. Dad, you're too far. I know. It's not easy for her to close a cabinet. He's incredibly neat. She's brave. He's brilliant. She's very competitive. competitive. I'll tell Charlie what's happening, and Cassie, you then hand him the envelope. I just get nervous. Can you unserve? What do you mean, like take it back? Charlie and I are getting a divorce, Mom. You can't be friends with him anymore. Gina! Charlie Bird! (laughs) Mom! Mom? Mom! What? You know, most people in my business, you're just transactions to them. I like to think of you as people. Oh, okay, good. You remind me of myself on my second marriage. Baby, I'm amazed the way you love me all the time. Part of what we're gonna do together is tell your story. Did you dye your hair again? No, this is me. You don't like it? Is it shorter? I prefer it longer, but... How are you doing? All right, and here we've got another 2019 American comedy drama film. This time it is directed and produced by Noah Baumbach. Uh, this actually was also written by Noah Baumbach and stars Scarlett Johansson, Adam Driver, Laura Dern, Alan Alda, Ray Liotta, Julie Haggerty, and Merritt Weaver, uh, amongst other cast members. Um, basically what we have here uh, is the story of a married couple, Charlie and uh, Nicole, and uh they have a little young man uh by the name of Henry um Charlie's a theater director uh Nicole's a former teen uh film star or whatever um and they are working together on a play that has a chance of moving forward to going into Broadway proper and then Nicole gets a chance to film a pilot, and she takes that and then moves across from New York to L.A. And then, of course, um, the play literally is now moving forward to Broadway, so Charlie decides to stay behind. Now, the relationship was already on the rocks when this happens, uh, but still, you know, just because it's on the rocks doesn't mean everything has to go to hell in a handbasket. Um Charlie decides, hey, I'm going to come out and see y'all and spend some time with y'all. He goes out there, and Nicole has him served with divorce papers. And the movie just kind of goes from there. Uh, It kind of tailors this story from from the way that a divorce is, air quotes, supposed to work. 
versus the complexity of a relationship behind the scenes when people still truly care about each other, but they don't know how to live together anymore. Um, my prom and so and the movie kind of goes from there. Uh, shenanigans ensue, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I will say this about the film. I do genuinely believe that it is well made and well acted. Um, and I guess as far as the characters themselves go, they are well written. Um, but because the story itself is so much a, an, is so much an outlier in the way divorce really works and i'm not saying that it can't happen or that it never does happen but despite the fact that this is the way we would more or less like a divorce to work where yes there's acrimony yes there's issues but at the at the core are two people who are human enough to recognize that they care about what happens to the other in the long run um is just too completely fantastical for me to accept as a film uh, that it wants to be taken seriously. I think that um, there are ways to do this kind of a film that would make it a stronger selling point and something that would have a higher ring of truth and I think this is controversial on my part, but I think they should have played this as a farce. Um, I think if you play it as a farce, you can still have serious elements within it, and you can still have that subtext of what you're trying to get to at the heart and the core of the relationship for the characters and this marriage uh, or divorce, if you will, or lack thereof. And then still kind of have the more outlandish zany aspects that would play out in the court where instead of instead of getting Kramer versus Kramer you're getting what after midnight I'm not sure so at the end of the day I still say it is well acted it is well produced well directed it's well made I just don't by the story. It does not work for me. So I give this a 3.5 out of 5. Um, I think it is a very, very, again, well-made movie, very decent movie. I can see why this is getting accolades. I am sure this is probably going to have several Oscar nominations coming its way uh, for Noah Baumbach, for Scarlett Johansson, for Adam Driver. Um, you know, I, I'm, I have no doubt in my mind. Um, but on a personal level, it just didn't reach me. Like, I guess maybe it's reaching everyone else. So, 3.5. Bring us home there, Tim. The movie certainly didn't touch me like Blue Valentine touched me some years ago. Didn't you see that one with... That's, see, that's how you tell a breakup. Right. That visceral and real. Raw. And raw, heartbreaking, but you still have those two people who truly still care about one, and they just don't know how to make it work. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Blue Valentine. Yes. Okay, sorry. I'm sorry. And Go ahead. Really, I, Marriage Story is a very, I thought, an entertaining movie. Well made, well acted, but it felt like I was watching a movie. That's just fine. 
But this movie is being packaged as this raw, true-to-life breakup story. Now, I felt for these characters. I wanted to see them work things out. I just wanted things to work out. That definitely says something. But I didn't feel raw emotion. I couldn't really connect with either of these people. Whereas with Blue Valentine, I could. Um, If I remember correctly, Blue Valentine, I think these were two people that were still trying to get their lives together. They're trying to get their shit together. Blue collar folk. Quite possibly you can consider, you know, the the couple from Marriage Story, blue collar. uh, no, No, you can't really call them blue collar folk. So there's really not much to relate other than the trials and tribulations that they're that they're being put through with their divorce and how they're having to deal with the downfall of their love and how it's affecting their child and the relationship with their child. That's what people relate to. But then you throw in these lawyers who are over the top. Laura Dern does a great job. Uh, so does Ray Liotta. But there's a level of of that Hollywood gloss to it. So that you you have that comfort of it feeling like a movie. Therefore, that risk factor, you're just really not feeling it as much as you should. I was very entertained. Great performances. I give it a four out of five. It's definitely worth seeing, and it is one that I would like to revisit. I couldn't say that with Blue Valentine, because... That movie really got me, and like any great epic breakup, there's really no point to revisit it, you know, because you worked through all that emotion. Sure. Yeah, so four out of five for me. All right, well, that's going to do it for the movies for this week. Um, There's a possibility that there will be movies next week, and if there are, they will be um, somewhere along the lines of things like perhaps A Hidden Life. Uh, or Dark Waters, or maybe The Report. The first two are from are in theater, and uh, the last one's on Amazon. Um, but we will definitely be doing our top movies of the decade, 2010 to 2015. Uh, and that, I do believe, will bring us to the spiel, will it not, sir? Spiel on! You set them up and I'll knock them back, Lloyd. One by one. White man's burden, Lloyd, my man. White man's burden. Say, Lloyd, it seems I'm temporarily light. <laughs> How's my credit in this joint, anyway? Your credit's fine, Mr. Torrance. That's swell. I like you, Lloyd. I always liked you. You were always the best of them. Best goddamn bartender from Timbuktu to Portland, Maine. Or Portland, Oregon, for that matter. Thank you for saying so. Right, 
well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we're, of course, the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLScast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLScast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at NitTwit12345. And, of course, come aboard that information superhighway track down to on Twitter, if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and our favorite us on Stitcher Radio, as well as track us down on the old Spotify, as well as Google Play and other podcast directories. If you would like to support the show, please head on over to Patreon.com and check us out over there. And as always, this is Matt saying that thanks to Aquafina, I get to say this. My every birthday wish was, I want to someday be on TV. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Perhaps we should be going. Oh, well, monsieur. Thank you so much. So nice to see you. And I hope very much we will see you again very soon. Au revoir, monsieur. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening.